0: Well, good evening everyone. I want to invite you to turn or swipe to the book of Acts. We'll be finishing chapter 14 in a passage that I thought that I would tag on to last week's message, but there was a phrase I'll tell you in a moment that just kept sticking with me, that I wanted to spend more time exploring it. That's what we'll do here in a moment. So while you're turning, I want to highlight again what Amy said when she led us in a time of prayer, how wild it is that we have students, but we also have teachers at all levels. We have a counselor, an administrator, and a professor, So we got a lot of bases covered on the back to school moment and we're so grateful for them and do say yes and amen to that prayer earlier. So let's join together in Acts chapter 14. We're gonna be looking at that last little chunk beginning in verse 21. Acts of course is the story of how the good news of Jesus is on the move to everyone everywhere and this is a particularly movement focused passage. It's really a sort of summary to a mixed bag of a mission that Paul and Barnabas were sent out to do from the church in Antioch. Last week we talked about how they had a pretty good time in one city and then they moved on to another and it was a hot mess and then we're going to see the third city in this cycle and beyond here, beginning in verse 21. Let's look. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. That would be Derby. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. They circled back up the map where they had just come from. Here's what they were doing in verse 22. Strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Here's that phrase. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church. And with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia. I told you there was some movement. These dudes are all over the map. From Attilia, they sailed back to Antioch, their home base, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. Can we pause real fast? Because I don't have a note on this in my outline. But I want to say that's a powerful phrase as well. Did that catch your ear? The phrase I'm thinking of is this They had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. Grace is not just a doctrine of God's free, unearned goodness. Grace is a constant state of leaning on what we have not ourselves that we have in God. They committed them to the grace. They committed them to the tender and strong care of the Father. They said, we're sending you out to go to all these hard to pronounce cities. But we can do so trusting, leaning that God will give you what you need when you need it. Committed to the grace of God. I love that. And they said, job well done. So verse 27, they arrived there, they gathered the church together, and they had a good old Baptist Sunday night share service. Amen? Some of you grew up in Baptist churches where you got the B team going on Sunday evening, but it wasn't just the youth pastor or me preaching on a Sunday evening. When the missionaries would come in, they would have them share what's been going on out in the field. Or, of course, you could have that youth camp share service. And they gather together to tell stories of what God has been up to. That's what they're doing here. But what they reported was what God had done through them. And how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time With the disciples. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I couldn't shake that phrase. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. What is that about? Do I want to go into the kingdom of God if it means I got to go through hardships? Is this a transaction? I can't get in unless I go through hardships? Or does it come with the Happy Meal? Instead of a toy, you get hardships. I'll circle back to that. But the reason I wanted to look at this last section together is because whatever it means, it was lived and processed together. In community, Paul gets beat up at the end of last week's passage. The community surrounds him and lifts him up physically. Then Paul goes back through all these cities where these people are getting beat up and spat upon. And he lifts them up spiritually. Strengthening them. Encouraging them. Saying, stay true to the faith. It's worth it. It's worth it. And then when they return to their home base, they gather them all and they say, You'll never believe what God has done in us and through us because you committed us to his goodness and grace. Y'all share in this as well. What's up with the suffering? What's up with all this togetherness? Whatever it means for us, I can tell you that someone is going through a rough time tonight. And it's better when we do it together. Someone will soon be going through a rough time. And I'd love for all of us to stay awake and walk with them. For some, suffering is only a theory. They've had difficulty. They've had struggle. But they haven't really gone through it through it. But they know somebody who has. And the way this life works Unfortunately, their turn is coming soon as well. For some, it's not a theory. It's an all-too-often reality. But the point I'm trying to make is that wherever we are on the spectrum of suffering, we all have something to learn from these people, this kingdom community, when we do it together. So I want you to imagine. Go back into Acts chapter 14, into this story of how the good news is on the move, And I want you to imagine that Paul and Barnabas make their way into a city, and they start in a place called a synagogue. A synagogue was an offshoot satellite campus of the temple. They would gather together as Jewish people to read from what we call the Old Testament, to hear the stories of God moving through his people. They would pray together, and it would function very much like this kind of church. And then Paul would stand up because he was a learned Jewish man. And they would say, you got something for us tonight? And he would tell them the story of Israel. And then he would tell them how there's good news. This long-awaited king has come. And his name is Jesus. The problem is, we all hung him up on a cross. But somehow, paradoxically, he defeated death by dying. God raised him to show us that he was a true king, and you can follow him now. So he's doing this in the Jewish synagogue, and most of the people are saying, we shouldn't ask this guy to preach, what the heck? But some of them said, now this sounds really interesting. And so they would go to Whataburger afterward, this, afterward in the synagogue, and they would say, tell us more about this Jesus. And we say, well, if you want, you can come back tomorrow, because I'm going to go to the downtown square in front of Intrinsic, I'm going to start talking to the people gathered there, even though it's all under construction right now. Just imagine. And Paul starts to tell them again, hey guys, you Greeks, you know that we didn't come by all this. By accident, there's a creator who's given you food and rain and good things. He was saying this to these people last week in Lystra. And they say, okay, I, I'm with you on that. And he says, and he's been patient and good to you, but guess what? He has sent his son to become one of us, with us. He's experienced life as we know it, but he's not just come to be an add-on to your life. He's come to give you life that's eternal in quality, the life of heaven, the good stuff, the stuff that perseveres and enlightens and enlivens whole communities. He's also given you this eternal life that's not just in quality, it's in quantity. It goes even beyond death. And some of those folks say, hey, that sounds pretty good. So then the next day, Paul is having breakfast and the people he met at the synagogue and the people he met at the town square are sitting there with him. And they say, so... I think we're buying what you're selling, man. he says, great, come back tonight because I got somebody here that has opened up their home and so they sit around a table. You can imagine sitting around a table with people, right? Maybe it looks like this image on the screen. But what's unique about this dinner party that Paul is now hosting in this city that is not his own is that this is the first time that many of them would sit across the table from one another because these synagogue guys for their whole life could not eat shrimp. They couldn't eat things that were bled out or cooked and butchered the wrong way the way that wasn't according to the Jewish law. And so they're having this food set down in front of them that they're not so sure is kosher or not. And the reason they're thinking this is because they're sitting across from a person that has never had a kosher meal in their life. And they're introducing themselves and they look different. They sound different. They've come at Jesus from two different paths. One from the people that God has been dealing with for centuries and another that's just heard God for the first time. And he's not the other ones that they saw in that temple down the road. This is a fellowship of difference. 15 to 40 folks around someone's dining room table that's shaped like a horseshoe and they're getting to know each other not just in the way of what do you do for a living, but let me get to know you because you're an entire people group I've never sat across from. You're from an entire socioeconomic level that I've never looked at eye to eye. Slaves, poor, homeless, lame, crippled, that guy that Paul and Barnabas healed through God's power, all of a sudden sitting next to the dignitary that came and read the law last Sabbath. These people sitting down, 15 or 40 of them, in a living room, they're singing songs together. They're eating together. In Acts chapter 2, most reliable translations believe now that they didn't just commit to prayer, they committed to the prayers they're learning prayers. They're probably praying the Shema prayer from Deuteronomy 6. And they're probably praying that because Jesus repeated it, reiterated it, and said, Hear, o Israel, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then they probably said, And our King Jesus said also, Love your neighbor as yourself. They're reciting these. And then someone is speaking a prayer that speaks, the Spirit of God is giving utterance. So they're praying, they're singing, they're eating. Then they start to hear stories of Jesus because they never saw Him, but they heard about Him and they want to hear more. And they talk about Jesus' teaching and they talk about how the story of Israel is actually their story too. They just got adopted into the family. And then at the end of the meal, they lift up a cup and the Greeks say, oh, I know this. I went to a dinner last time from one of these Um, uh, patrons for that one temple and this is the part of the meal in our society when the guy gives a toast and he says to king zeus to the king of all gods or then the other family they said "Yeah, yeah i went to one of these a month ago and they said to king caesar the son of god the prince of peace But this time in this dining room, they're all sitting down with all these randos and they're somehow still enlivened and energized because we're singing now, we're eating now. And when they lift up the cup, they don't say Zeus and they don't say Caesar. They say to King Jesus, who died and rose again, Christ is risen and Christ will come again. And they break the bread because he said he did this with us. And now he told us to do it with you. And they dip the bread, they eat the bread, they finish off the whole meal, and they're doing it now with this reverential silence because now it's weighty and they're tasting it. Now they're putting the stories they heard into their bodies and into their bones. And they're saying, this sounded really interesting in the synagogue or the square, but now I know that I know that I know that Christ is Lord and that we are his people. This person that was stranger is now brother and sister. And then another week goes by and they've met again. And sometime in that week, somebody had a need and somebody was hurting. And so some of them said, well, I'm off on Tuesday. And so they got together and they laid hands on a person and they prayed for them. And then they heard that this other person in the city that was their cousin's friends, whoever, they went and they go feed him and care for him. And then a week later, they gather back and they tell more stories. And they start to realize that some of these people are really living into a space of leadership and care. And so, So Paul, who had been there for a time, had also been meeting and discerning and praying. And Barnabas and he are saying, have you seen this guy or gal? And so what happens is they say in a week or two, hey, guys, you know, Paul and I, we can't be here forever. But this person will. Will. And so if it pleases you, we see these characteristics. We need you to tell us what you see. And then next week, when you come back, after a time of fasting and discernment, what we're going to do is what somebody did for us and lay hands on this person and commit them to the Lord and your church. And they say, what is a church? And they say, this. Keep doing this. And go tell that person and invite them to dinner next week. And so then what happens the next week, they all come back and they lay hands on this person and that person. And they say, this is an elder. They say, well, this person's 34 years old. And they say, it's an elder. And they say, what's an elder? It's only been mentioned twice in the book of Acts. Luke doesn't tell us here because all the other people in all the other dining rooms say, oh, yeah, that's like John over there. They're the people that oversee our community and make sure that everybody's clicking and moving. They're the people that shepherd and lead and care for our community. What else is an elder? An elder is a teacher. They're the ones that tell us the Jesus story. And they're the example So when they don't know because they've only been doing this thing for four weeks, this person has some sense of, I think that what Jesus would do in this situation is this. And then when that person is unable to, the elder says, and Mary over here, she has a gift and we need to equip her and Send her to go and do the work of the church. An elder is an overseer, shepherd, teacher, example, equipper. Paul will go back and write some more of what these other churches and these other people need to look for. Because these guys in Galatia and Ephesus and these gals in Rome. These are the ones that are hosting and caring and overseeing these little kingdom outposts and dining rooms throughout the world. Can you imagine this? My hope is that we're living it. And then Paul leaves. And then maybe these 20, 30 people will get a letter. Maybe these people in Acts 14 probably got Galatians. Maybe. They'll connect with this other one across town because they sent out Mary and John and Joseph down the street to go tell more good news and start a new community. And thus, the movement continues. Now imagine you start to live the Jesus way. You're sharing your possessions, your time, your energy, your efforts. You're forgiving people because you heard this prayer that we prayed tonight to forgive us as we forgive those who sinned against us. And you say, that was hard. And then you start to serve the poor, the people you walked past on the street every day. And you say, that was weird, but I feel good and alive. And I feel like this is something That could change the world. And then you start to say, matter of fact, it'll change the world because there's a new king and he's the world's true king. And you can be loved and forgiven more than you imagine. And you can have a purpose. But then you go home and you're like, but why don't my parents get it? Why doesn't my brother talk to me anymore? You're sitting there in Derby and you're like, he's left me on red because he thinks I'm weird. I'm getting ghosted from my cousins and friends. So when they don't get it and they don't live it, maybe it feels like you're swimming upstream. How many of you went to a water park or a lazy river this summer? Cool. I was the only person, Amy and I. Did you get in the lazy river? No, you didn't. Because she said, I ain't getting in that thing. It's way too warm. Mamie's you were braver no I got in a lazy river and one of the things I always do because I'm still eight years old at heart is after you kind of go through the flow and you've done a lap around where it's super fast and I had to be super fast because we have five kids blazing a trail in front of us I go hey 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 try this try this what do I try you got to turn it around baby You've done the fast thing and now you got to be the American gladiator that's going against the current. You feel the resistance. Except the resistance you're feeling is people that don't want this king, that don't want to forgive. You're marked and swimming upstream as this crazy person that is not actually in touch with how the world works. The problem is... The world's current is flowing one direction, and that's the direction that's away from the love and life of God. Something happens with humanity, and I saw it in the Woodstock 99 documentary, (laughs) and I see it on the news every day. There is something about us and our autonomy that turns our backs and wants nothing to do with the love and way of God. And the reason why we don't feel that resistance today is because we're swept up in the rest of the world's current that is moving away from the heart of God. And when we realize that the way of the world, quote unquote, is vanity, and greed, and selfishness, and hatred, and why does it always devolve into violence? It doesn't feel like you're going upstream until you realize, wait a minute, where are we headed, where are we headed? And then you look at the news and you feel disoriented when you finally recognize the world's current is headed over a cliff. So now imagine that Jesus comes and says, Turn away from your way. Turn back to the heart of God. And he tells parables of sheep who have wandered a good way. And then he tells warnings about how this world is destined for destruction. And if you keep living like that, you're going to wind up in hell, which was a literal place where all the trash and death and decay and sacrifices wound up. In a fire that's smoldering on the other side of town. It's headed off a cliff and Jesus says, turn upstream. Now we're back to our kingdom communities in Garland and Galatia. And you start to realize that once Paul and Barnabas is gone and your friends and family think you're a nut job and that person that you forgave doesn't forgive you or want you and this money that you gave didn't have a return on investment and this person that you've poured into didn't love you back or come to church and then this family member that you've prayed for dies and you feel... The resistance then and you say what have we done and you look around and you say there's only 40 of us here and we raise a cup to king jesus and four million are raising a cup to king caesar and you start to feel alone well that's why paul and barnabas went back to the churches they just came from to say i know you feel the resistance but keep on it's worth it there's life here And then you get letters like James that say, consider it joy when you suffer trials because it's growing strength. Because you get a lot stronger moving against the current than you would with it. But they still say, I feel so alone. So then when they get back to Antioch and they say, guys, (laughs) we knew it in theory But now we know for real, I got stoned and not the good one, right? I got stoned and they had to lift me up and I've had to like sneak out of cities. I'm going to get bitten by snakes. And he says, I told you, but now I know we can't enter the kingdom of God unless through hardships. So now we circle back to that phrase and we say, okay, Is this a transaction? You can't be God's child and a citizen of the kingdom unless you pay your dues. Do you think that that's what he means? That's how it reads in the version I read. Do you think that's what's going on? For real? No? Hope not. That would seem kind of strange when Paul also says it's by grace you've been saved through faith. That Jesus forgave us and paid it all and turned to him and all this. So if it's not that, what if it's that other option we mentioned? Hey, hardships comes with the meal. Hardships come with the territory. You know why I lean toward that answer? Because if it's true of Jesus, why do we expect otherwise? Is it because there's way too many preachers that's going to be on your TV tomorrow morning telling you that you should have everything you've hoped for and asked for? You should drive the car you need, and you're just a breakthrough away. You just better keep going and keep giving. Well, that's just a different kind of transaction. It ain't hardships, it's money. But you're still pointing something into the cosmic vending machine so that you can earn your place in the kingdom. I think Paul comes back to his home base because he's been knocked down, dragged out. And he says, man, if Jesus had to go through it, guess what? We do too. We're going to get to kingdom come by the skin of our teeth with some carpet burns and rock scars on the way. Maybe that's what's going on, but it feels hard, and that's why I feel like the example of Jesus is so powerful. God entered into the human condition so deeply that he allowed himself to feel physical, mental, emotional, psychological, deep pain. So much so that the Savior of the world quoted the psalm that said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You think elder so-and-so in Galatia feels alone? The Son of God felt alone. Whether or not that was Jesus' actual reality, that was his actual experience. Christ felt forsaken. Christ felt the agony and brutality, of violence, and misunderstanding. He said everything and they misinterpreted it. He said this and his closest friends didn't get it. He said, I need you, and they bailed on him. Jesus experiences pain and brokenness and suffering. God enters into humanity not so that he can just kind of float and dip his toe in the water and say, yeah, I get it. I I can see how that's rough. He experienced the anguish and darkness of death and despair in the deepest sense, betrayal and pain. So that when we experience resistance, We have a Savior that can look us in the face and say, I know, I know, but I'm with you. So when we feel that resistance and we feel like we're alone, we can hear once, like Jesus' disciples did, Hey, I'm not going to leave you on my own. I'm going to send you a comforter. And so Paul will say, this little church and this little dining room, it may feel weird because I left, but guess what? Um, uh, You have the Holy Spirit, and you have Jesus who's with you. But when they have the resistance, they may remember and hear it, but they don't feel it, they don't really believe it. So you start to ask questions like, why, God, is this resistance happening? And that's not super helpful because, biblically speaking, you almost never get an answer to that. The biggest question, why God does suffering and sin and evil happen? We don't have an answer for. Instead, we have a mystery and an example to get us through it to the other side. So then we say, okay, what's a better question? Maybe it's what God? This is what I preached when I first started. I was like, I've got something really clever. A better question than why, God, is what, God? What are you doing in this? What are you forming in me? And then I lived some life and realized, oh, dang, we don't get that answer a lot of the time either. Peter will give us some answer. James, I mentioned earlier, gives us an answer, perseverance, strength, and all that. But I don't know what God is doing most of the time in me. Sometimes we're better at saying what's going on in other people, this crazy person right there. So maybe that's a better question, but it's not the best. It was another pastor in our area when I floated this at one of our coffees. Like, you know, you know, what I always say is instead of why God, let's ask what God? And he goes, okay, yeah, but here's a better one. And I hate when this happens. (laughs) Except I love it because this is what I preach now. The best question is where, God? Where are you in this? And I feel like that we can very equivocally, like, clearly say that he is with the brokenhearted, the suffering, and he is never as far as we think. So maybe the answer to that question I'll give you tonight, and you can make note of this, where's God in our suffering? I would say with us, for us, and forming us. God is with us, acquainted with grief, Near to us, and even though he may not deliver us and save us when we want it and how we want it, he's still present to us. He's for us, he's not doing this because he hates you, he hasn't abandoned you fully. You may experience a distance, and there's time in our life that the mystics for centuries have experienced, and they've called the dark night of the soul, they experience the absence of God. Mother Teresa, who is a literal saint in the Catholic Church, it's come out after her death that she experienced a dark night in the absence of God for decades, the last decades of her life. But then I think we can always say he's for us because he's forming us. He's shaping us. He's growing us. That's my best guess. But the problem is, is that pain narrows our focus. You can write this down in your journal. You can write it down in our Bible. But next week, when it's a rough time, it narrows your focus and you think, oh, heck. And then you go and sit with somebody in our church or You post something on Facebook, and then you say, oh, man, because they just minimize what you're experiencing. So I think there's two things true of pain. It narrows our focus, and it shouldn't be explained away. So what's the invitation for us? We need to make a habit of reminding each other that, hey, God's still here, even and especially when it hurts. Can we commit neighborhood church, whether it's with our neighbors who aren't yet experiencing the love and goodness of God or here in our own church, that God's still here when it hurts. And there's a delicate way of saying it because it's going to sound like a bumper sticker part of the time. So we need the spirit of God's discernment and help. I think part of the problem is that pain narrows our focus. I think the second problem is maybe it's because we're not looking in the right place. Because we've been hearing too many Sunday morning preachers on TV tell us if you're suffering, what did you do wrong? It's your fault. You haven't given enough, prayed enough, loved enough, laughed enough. And then Paul comes back to Antioch and said, man, we did everything you said and the Spirit was with us. We saw some amazing things and we still got torched and lit up. But when the community gathered them back and they shared this story, they praised God. They refueled and recharged and said, you did it. But maybe today it's because we're not looking in the right place. That's why I love this quote from Australian Jesuit priest Gerald O'Collins when he says this. Someone take a picture of this and remember it when you're having a rough one. While we look for him among priests, he is among sinners. While we look for him among the free, he is a prisoner. While we look for him in glory, he is bleeding on a cross. In February and March, talking with our dear friend in Russia, the question was very top of mind, where is Christ in this? And he was talking about how it really simplifies and narrows our perspective. And it was around this time as I'm looking for Christ, and this is where I found him on Twitter. And I wish I could tell you who took this image but I can't find it. But let me explain what it is. It is the corpus, the body, that has been removed from a crucifix in a Ukrainian Orthodox church. Almost 20 years ago, I was able to go to Ukraine and visit many of these churches and orphanages. And this is weeks after the siege, and they removed this corpus to hide it and store it so that it wouldn't be destroyed. And I don't want to explain much of it. I I couldn't if I tried. There's something about Christ being in Ukraine amongst the bleeding and suffering ones that I just need to kind of hush and let this image capture it even better. And the world says, well, look at him. He looks horrible. It looks gothic. It's, it's horrifying and gross. And what are these guys doing next? I mean, they're fearing and running for their lives. But Christ is with them. In suffering, as a suffering savior, reconciling and renewing the world, even though pain has narrowed our focus and we're not really looking for him in the right places. That's why I think we can keep moving in the midst of suffering because of what we sang. We can say it is well, not because it's like the old book, Pollyanna, that, oh, this is terrible, but it's great, actually. No, no, no. We can say it is well, when it's not good, because of what we sang next. My eyes are on you. And I remember having this experience at a Catholic church here in town, years ago, sitting in a quiet place, looking at their crucifix above the altar and never really connecting with it because I was raised most of my youth in a church that didn't have crucifixes. And so I would always say, hey, you know, Christ got off the cross. But I'm sitting there in this Catholic church looking at this crucifix and thinking of people who've said, I can't identify with it. It's, it's gross. It's gothic. And when I looked at it that day, Yes, there's blood pouring from his hands and feet and side. And I see there beyond the surface and see the greatest picture of love the world has ever seen. The kind of picture of love that showed the world what God is really like when he experiences suffering and brokenheartedness a picture that can inspire us to pick up our own cross and walk the streets to help lift others. And I really had this contemplative experience just beholding this cross, and it's like a switch went, and now I can never see the movie the same way again because the plot twist is like reshaped how I see the same image. And so every time I see a crucifix now, I I see a picture of suffering love, Because we're called to co-suffering, sacrificial love ourselves. So when we suffer, we're following in the footsteps of the Christ who gets stashed in a shed, huddled in with people fearing for their lives. But it's only when we're able to hold that paradox of the suffering Savior in our hearts, and we keep our eyes on Him, That we begin to trust maybe, just maybe, no darkness is too dark, no despair is too deep, and no pain is too persistent. We can say it as well, not because we're faking it till we make it, but we can come back like Paul and Barnabas and say, look what God did, even when we got beat up. So I'll close with our current and a quote. What if that current of the world wasn't the only one? What if at the end of the age we realize that we were headed in the right direction all along? That what felt like resistance in a world that is passing away and the old ways of violence and greed and hate and racism, those were actually running down the drain But what God is doing is remaking, renewing, and calling us to live in the universe's proper place. What if there is the current of the kingdom of God flowing from the heart of God that see, finally, we were headed in the right direction. The universe is actually oriented on an axis of love and goodness and generosity and forgiveness and it feels hard and you suffer now because the world hasn't woke up to this fact yet but the reason Paul and Barnabas kept going back to those cities back to those dining rooms when they sit there and go gosh it's just 40 of us he says you're headed in the right direction It may not feel like it, it may hurt, it may sting, but keep forgiving, keep giving, keep gathering, keep serving, keep declaring that Jesus is Lord, because one day every knee will bow and tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, and it's the one that God lifts up after he had gone so low. And here's what it looks like in a community. And the quote that we'll close with from one of my heroes, Dorothy Day. Love and ever more love is the only solution to every problem that comes up. If we love each other enough, we will bear with each other's faults and burdens. If we love enough, we are going to light that fire in the hearts of others. And it is love that will burn out the sins and hatreds that sadden us. It is love that will make us want to do great things for each other. No sacrifice and no suffering will then seem too much. May it be for us this week, in suffering or out of it, amen and amen. Go now and live as kingdom citizens, forgiving, living, loving, and serving those, serving as those who have been plunged into the life-giving waters of new creation. When suffering comes, pray in faith. In times of joy, sing songs of praise. Persevere in prayer and action to bring those who are far off back to the truth. And may God deliver you from all that would harm you. May Christ Jesus heal you and raise you up. And may the Holy Spirit anoint you and give you peace with one another. We go in peace to love and serve the Lord in the name of Christ. Amen.